or simply listen to the uh, scripture text as I read it. I'm going to read a whole chapter, but it's a pretty short chapter. It's uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah from the Old Testament, chapter 3. Listen now to the word of God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, you may be seated. This is one of the most beautiful stories in all the Bible. This year I read slowly through the Old Testament prophets. And when I came to this chapter, I just knew that I had to preach about it at Advent. It really is an appropriate Advent to message. Verse 8, did you notice, talked about the branch, God's servant that was to come. Well, the branch, notice it's capitalized, the branch refers to whom? Do you know? Jesus Christ. But I want to preach about the story surrounding the mention of the branch. I can't imagine a message more suitable for this Advent season than this heartwarming vision. So Zechariah prophesied at a time when God, little by little, was returning Israel to the land of Canaan. Israel had been sent off into captivity to Assyria and to Babylon, and God was bringing them back. This is the general time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you've read about in the scripture. The temple was being rebuilt. It was an exciting time. It was a hard time. There were many enemies of the Jews. There was still a lot of sin among the Jews, even though they had been brought back to their land. Well, if you've read Zechariah before, you know that the first part of it contains a number of visions. God gave Zechariah several visions for his people. This one in chapter 3 is a vision of Joshua before God's throne. This Joshua was an actual historical person, historical figure. He was a high priest at the time, a high priest in the line of Aaron. Now, obviously, this isn't the Joshua who followed Moses. That was a lot earlier. This is just a different Joshua. I'm sure, and the commentators are pretty sure, that the prophet Zechariah knew this high priest, Joshua. Maybe the high priest was his friend. 
Uh, Both were no doubt excited that God was releasing the Jews and getting them back to the promised land, the land of their fathers. But, But in this vision, God showed Zechariah something about Joshua that he never knew. He saw the high priest in a light that he'd never recognized before. And that seemed to stun Zechariah, stun him during his vision. Another thing, before I kind of mention these two main things, it's imperative we understand that Joshua stands for the whole nation of Israel, not just him. We really see that in verses, in, uh, verses 9 following. Joshua was the representative for the entire nation. So God wasn't just addressing Joshua. He was also dealing with all of his covenant people. And that means, by the way, that he's also speaking in this passage to us, his church. The church of Jesus Christ, and mark this down, the church of Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham, God's covenant people. Galatians 3 makes that clear. All Jews and all Gentiles who trust in Jesus Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs of the covenant of promise. That's what Paul says. And that's why this vision that we read is so pertinent to us. So, Zechariah sees heaven. He sees this vision. Heaven has a great courtroom. Get that in your mind's eye. Satan is there as the prosecuting attorney, and he is accusing Joshua before God, the great judge. Just viciously, viciously attacking the high priest as Satan there in the heavenly courtroom. By the way, Satan loves to accuse. In the New Testament, John even calls him the accuser of our brothers. That's one of his descriptions. Now, you know I was thinking about this. What a hypocrite Satan is. Do you ever think what a hypocrite he is? Satan tempts us to sin, and then when we do sin... He accuses us before God and heaps guilt and shame on us. He even accuses the godly, like Job. So Satan is the universe's biggest hypocrite and the universe's biggest phony. This vision also reminds us that we're in a most serious battle with Satan. I was reading just this week, I think it was on Tuesday, the words of the great reformer, John Calvin, in his commentary. Listen to these amazing words. We wonder why so many enemies daily rage against us and why the whole world burn against us with such implacable hatred. Implacable means they can't be satisfied. And also why so many intrigues arise, why so many assaults are made, which have not been excited through provocation on our part, that is, which we didn't do. But the reason why we wonder, Calvin says, is this. Because we bear not in mind that we are fighting with the devil, the head and prince of the whole world. For were it a fixed principle in our minds that all the ungodly are influenced by the devil, there would then be nothing new in the fact that all unitedly rage against us. How so? Because they are moved by the same spirit and their father is a murderer, even from the beginning. You know what Calvin's basically saying there? You should expect, if you're living a godly life, trying to bring your children up in the faith, giving them the gospel, being faithful to the church of Jesus Christ, operating a business or planning on operating a business according to God's standards. If you're involved in a Christian ministry and you're teaching the truth to adults and children. If you're a young Christian here, single Christian here, living a pure and a holy life. All of these are a rebuke to the evil that surrounds us. They're a rebuke. Now, I have a question. Calvin's basically saying this. Shouldn't you expect that Satan, who wants him to do nothing but destroy God, wouldn't you expect that Satan would be on the attack? Wouldn't you expect that? Of course you would. You would expect that. That's precisely what he would do. 
and what he is doing. Satan is our very real enemy, so we shouldn't be surprised when he tries to cut us down without mercy. So Joshua is standing there before God in a filthy robe. Now, that term filthy actually translates the Hebrew word that means excrement. That's not a very pleasant picture. Can you imagine how this sordid appearance must have shaken Zechariah? Jehovah required in Exodus 28 that the high priest wear very clean and splendorous garments. To see God's high priest in such such excrement-stained clothes, no doubt, was very disturbing to the prophet. These pre-exilic, before the exile high priests, wore very splendorous clothes. Why? To honor Jehovah and their very high office to show how important God's work was for them. What a pitiful and what a pitiable figure Joshua must have been, standing in heaven with these dirty, filthy clothes on. Those uh, dirty clothes in the vision signified uh, our sin and our guilt before God. Not just that of the high priest, but of all the Jews that Joshua represented. The entire nation, the entire nation of Israel stood before God, as it were, in filthy excrement-stained clothes. And Satan was there at the right hand, just rapidly, rapidly, rapidly accusing them before God. Satan may be the, the universe's worst hypocrite, but he does know that God's holy. And that he demands holiness of his creatures. You know, I wish more church members today knew what Satan knows about God on that score. We rarely hear about the holiness of God today. Rarely, because people want to live unholy lives and expect God as the great cosmic teddy bear to ignore their sin. Well, that isn't the God of the Bible, my sister and brother. We're not as holy as we think we are, and God is holier than we think he is. God's holy, and too often we are not. Note, however, and this is one of those great blessed teachings of this passage. Note that when God answered Satan, he didn't rebuke Satan for a lie although Satan is a liar and the father of lies. God knew how sinful his people were. He didn't have to dispute that fact with Satan. No, he rebuked Satan on entirely different grounds. Did you see what he said there as we were reading? He basically said, Satan, how dare you accuse? How dare you accuse my chosen people? Jerusalem is chosen. They are my people. I'm their God. I'm their guardian. I'm their protector. I'm their savior. How dare you accuse them? Now, I want you to remember this, my brother and sister. Our salvation is based in God's election. God chose us to salvation. You didn't first choose God. He chose you. We stand righteous in God's sight because God chose us to stand righteous. That's as true of the Jews, and it's equally true of us. You know, I pity those dear saints that don't understand election. Maybe some of you know them. Election assures us beyond any doubt whatsoever that salvation is God's work. It's not our work. It's God's work. In fact, I think that there's no biblical fact that better proves that salvation is God's work than this truth of election. God declares us as righteous people as a result of his electing grace. He chose us. How does this work? We get a clue in verse 4. I just love this. Did you may want to, if you have your Bibles open, or look there. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Oh, isn't that powerful? 
That's one of the most powerful pictures in the Bible of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imputed means counted, that we are counted righteous in Jesus. Do you understand, my brother and sister, our sin is so bad that we can't be reformed. We have to get somebody else's righteousness. Oh, isn't that something? Our hearts are so sinful. We can't be reformed. We have to get somebody else's righteousness. We have to get an entirely new righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore the penalty for our sins. He suffered God's wrath that we, by all rights, that we, by all rights, should have suffered. Our sins became his. He didn't sin, but our sins were placed on him. And on the other hand, alternatively, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, all of his righteousness becomes ours, is imputed to us. Nobody ever in the Bible said it better than Paul with one verse. Some of you know the verse I'm going to quote, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to this. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great transfer in salvation. And if this didn't happen, brother and sister, you can't be saved. Do you understand that? All of our sins were placed on Jesus Christ, and he was punished for our sins. And all of his righteousness was placed on us. And now we stand clean and pure and sinless in the Lord's court. The Bible's picture of that imputed righteousness often is like clean clothes or a clean robe. And a number of times in the Bible. One that I want to read quickly, though, is a wonderful, beautiful one in Revelation 19. John, of course, is speaking. He says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride? Do you know? The church. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God elects his people and he clothes them with the righteousness of his son. The angel told Joseph, Mary will bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus. For he'll save his people from their sins. We get all of his righteousness. He saves us first then. By crediting Jesus' righteousness, God does, to our account. He rips off those old, filthy, excremental robes, and he puts on the fresh, clean, white robes of his son's righteousness. So we stand in his heavenly court, righteous, because we have the righteousness of another that's been marked to our account. But God saves a second way. Did you notice verse 6? There are two parts of that chapter. We have to preach on both of them. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, The angel of the Lord, by the way, is probably who there? Probably the Son of God. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among all those who are standing here. You see, it's not enough to enjoy imputed righteousness. Jesus didn't die on the cross only to make us holy in God's court. He also died to make us holy in God's world. God gave Joshua a new robe of righteousness, judicial righteousness. Then he expected him by the Spirit's power to live a holy life. You now have a white robe, he's basically saying, Joshua, you have a white robe that I've given you. Act as a white-robed person because you are one. This is imparted righteousness or implanted righteousness. And it's no less important than that imputed righteousness. God changes our standing 
in his great heavenly court from guilty to innocent. And he changes our life in this world from sinful to holy. I want to conclude with a warning and with an exhortation. Don Brosomley and I will not be around forever. We're not getting uh, any younger, especially Don. (laughs) He and I feel a keen burden to transmit the truth to those of you that may be in your 20s, 30s. We've been, by God's grace, following the Lord a good long time. By His grace, I'm going to transmit the truth. I want to warn you, and I want you to know about a couple of temptations and errors that you're likely to face increasingly in the future. The first of these, which is certainly around today, is humanism. Humanism makes man the measure of everything. This is a very old error. It either denies God, like atheism, or it may acknowledge God, but kind of pushes him out of man's world, like Immanuel Kant did. Yeah, God's up there, but you really can't know him, and he isn't really involved in the world. He'll be there when you get there, but what he has to say is not very important. The humanist view of salvation is man-centered. Uh, Man is saved, according to the humanist, by a psychology or psychotherapy or drugs or, uh, you know, federal programs like the Affordable Care Act. The power of God sort of recedes into the background and the power of man comes to occupy the foreground. God is very, very distant. Man is very present. And what man can do is very important. In the churches, this humanism comes in the form of uh, liberalism, even in some evangelical churches. Salvation is basically by being nice. You basically are saved by being nice, keeping the golden rule, not judging anybody for anything, except Bible believers, of course. Being kind to the animals and to the lettuce. Being one with the cosmic earth forces. There's no place for the biblical gospel in liberalism. The gospel is that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, in his atoning death on the cross, in his bodily resurrection. That is the gospel, brother and sister. Liberals hate the biblical gospel because it shows how sinful man is. It teaches that man can't save himself. It points everyone to Jesus Christ and to nobody and nothing else. That's why liberals hate the gospel. So I would have you beware of humanism. Beware of its religious face, liberalism, in the future. But there's a second error. That's the heir of antinomianism. This means lawlessness. Church people say, salvation's by grace, so we'd better not stress obedience too much. You might lead people to think that they're saved by works. But Paul didn't have that problem, and Jesus didn't have that problem, and Peter and John and Moses and Zechariah didn't seem to have that problem. They know that we're not saved by works. We're saved entirely by Jesus Christ and his blood and resurrection. But we are, as Paul said, saved to good works. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 2. That's what salvation by grace means. Today we hear a great deal about the grace revival. Who could oppose that? We need more grace, not less grace. More teaching, not less about God's matchless grace. But the real problem often is the very impoverished view of grace we have. It's a grace that gets us God's forgiveness, but not transformation. It's a grace that leaves us enslaved to Satan's dominion. But Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 6 that in the cross and resurrection, we are liberated from the power of sin. We're liberated from the power of sin. What a paltry and pitiful view of grace. 
that's impotent to give us victory over sin. What a watered-down gospel that is. A gospel that doesn't transform us isn't the biblical gospel. Thank God the same one who gave us Jesus imputed righteousness also gave us Jesus imparted righteousness. We have his righteousness in which we're clothed. And we have his righteousness implanted in us by the Spirit so that we can obey him. It's wonderful. We can rejoice, my friends, this Advent season, that God has taken away our filthy robe of sin and he's replaced it with the spotless robe of Jesus' righteousness. God has rebuked our accuser because we're God's elect people and we stand in his son's holiness and righteousness by union with him. But we can also rejoice that God has implanted in us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's changing us from an unholy to a holy people. Even in the hardships that we encounter, God uses them to make us holy before him. God is making what's inside that robe to conform to what's outside the robe. White and pure as the people of God. And we will stand before the Lord one day, as Revelation says, in those wonderful white, clean linen robes, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteous deeds of the saints. We can rejoice in this, this Advent season. Let us pray. I'm going to ask uh, Dave. Dave, would you pray for us that God would apply these truths to our heart?